welcome everybody to the St. Superior Sips podcast. I'm Emma Swain. I'm the CEO at St. Superior State Vineyards and Winery here in Napa Valley in the beautiful Rutherford region. As we all know, over the past 24 months, the one constant factor in our lives has been change, changing regulations, changing consumer buying and dining habits, changing traffic patterns, and perhaps a quite unpredictable supply chain from anywhere from our favorite wines to our toilet paper. So today I'm excited to be joined by Christian Miller and Danny Brager from the Wine Market Council, Jimmy Chavez um, with TS Restaurants, Alec Brugenthies, the general manager at, uh, for the National Wine Program for Smith & Lenski, and Charlene Pontrelli, owner of Cellar 406 in Chicago. So thank you all so much for, for joining us today to talk about consumer trends and habits. Um, let's kick off a little bit with Christian and Danny giving us an overview of the numbers and really what's happening out there. Um, first, let me introduce Christian. He's a very long-term friend. We worked together over 20 years ago and have um, been doing different projects together ever since. Christian is the um, Miller's proprietor of Full Glass Research based in Berkeley, California, as well as research director for the Wine Market Council. Full Glass provides market research and industry analysis for food and beverage producers and organizations. His projects range from economic impact analysis to measuring consumer perception of brands and regions to also testing new packages and labels. And I think you're all seeing a lot of those out there right now. The Wine Market Council is a nonprofit organization with members ranging from wineries, vineyards, importers, wholesalers, retailers, and service organizations. The Wine Market Council provides market research for its members on fundamental wine consumer demographics, trends, and behavior. Christian has a BA in economics and an MBA from Cornell University. He has marketed wine brands from a few thousand cases to over several million, giving him a really broad view of our industry. He also manages and lectures um, the short course at uh, the University of California Davis for wine marketing. Um, you can check out more information about Full Glass Research and Wine Market Council on their websites. Um, Danny Brager has an amazing wealth of experience in beverage alcohol industry, analyzing um, trends over many, many years. He formerly headed the Nielsen Beverage Alcohol Practice Area in the U.S., and I'm sure many of you have uh, used the information that he has presented at so many of the um, different programs that we've had the privilege of having uh, Danny speak at. Um, in Danny's role with Nielsen, he supported um, client suppliers, importers, distributors, and retailers, as well as key industry groups and the media. In Danny's role there, he um, provided data-driven analysis and insights focused on the U.S. marketplace, environment, and consumer shopper. In 2020, Danny introduced Brager Beverage Alcohol Consulting, and he provides analysis services to companies seeking to translate market data into fact-based insights in support of their goals. Um, he speaks often at many um, different industry events and is also a special advisor to the Wine Market Council. 
So please, um, anytime you have an opportunity to hear from Danny, you're going to be filled with lots of great information. Don't miss out on it. Um, so I'd just like to kick off with them and with you, Christian, you know, the Wine Market Council just completed its biannual large scale survey of American drinkers. Um, can you share with us um, some preliminary findings and some data from that survey? Uh, sure. I mean, we've just we're, we've just started crunching the numbers, so this is preliminary and sort of some very very top line stuff. Uh, and as the saying goes, we have good news and bad news. <laughs> uh, first, a quick description of the survey. It's over five thousand five thousand seven hundred twenty six people this year. It's always about fifty five hundred to fifty eight hundred people. We've been running it since twenty fifteen on a stable. Uh, a consistent methodology uh, where the which polls basically all legal drinking age adults balanced by for to represent the census in terms of demographics, and uh, it's been a pretty consistent over the years in terms of uh, delivering sort of the basic picture of what the wine American wine consumer uh, looks like, and um, we also ask about you know beer spirits RTDs etc. But primarily, it's focused on wine, and we look at it as sort of a benchmark for the industry to refer to when you're looking at, you know, the proportion of the population that drinks this or that, or trying to figure out how much and how to find certain kinds of wine drinkers. Anyway, what we saw in 2021 versus 2019, we skipped 2020 because it was so. Uh, the polling was very skewy between you've got election year and the pandemic, and uh, it was we really didn't have a lot of confidence in trying to run a couple of waves of polls during that time. But versus 2019, what we see is a decline in the proportion of wine drinkers in the legal drinking age population. Mainly, it's sort of marginal, low-frequency wine drinkers drifting away to spirits or RTDs or other drinks or cutting back on alcohol broadly. Meanwhile, what you'd call the core wine consumers, people who drink it, say, every week, they're increasing their consumption and they're continuing to trade up out of the $10 and under category and into higher end. Uh, the population of high-end wine drinkers, which we define as people who drink uh, wine more often than once a week and purchase $20 or more expensive wine on at least a monthly basis, that population remains stable. Well, that's good news for, for some of us, um, certainly. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit more um, about the, um, the demographics of those core wine consumers? Well, we're still trying to explore that because it may have shifted some during the uh, during the past couple of years. Uh, in general, wine is broadly consumed. Uh, it tends to be a more important part of the uh, alcohol consumption for people fifty and older. Uh, there are it's penetrated to a lower extent people under say 35, but there's still substantial numbers of wine drinkers there, but they're drinking a lot of other things. And, uh, and they tend to be more in the sort of marginal uh, peripheral wine consumption population right now than they are uh, among the cores and so on. I could dig up some actual numbers from the papers in front of, well, from the screens in front of me now, but uh, that's the gist of it. 
Okay. Um, you also recently issued a report on perceptions and outlook of the wine trade. Um, any uh, highlights from that? Surprises? Yeah, I mean, this was based on. In, actually, there's a number of interesting things here. This was based on the uh, Wine Opinions Trade Panel, which is over five thousand members of the trade uh, across sort of all levels of the trade, and also including you know suppliers and media and so on and so forth. We focused on the three tier system. The retail in this report, the retailers uh, on and off premise, and the wholesalers and importers. And uh, one thing that came loud, loud and clear is that the, the long shadow of the pandemic is not uh, lifted very much. Uh, the on-premise respondents said the recovery was running slow. Uh, the top four worries of the trade, all three tiers of the trade, were all pandemic driven. Uh, number one was adequate stock due to supplier logistics issues. Number two was not being able to find good employees or coworkers. Number three was the possibility of an emergence of a new variant of COVID. And four was price increases for products. And all of these are related directly or indirectly to the pandemic. I mean, just the logistics, the price increases are to some extent driven by the logistics and supply issues. Logistics and supply issues are simply the clash of a system that ran on kind of just in time and quick delivery meeting a complete flip, flipping on the part of consumers in terms of the ratio of services they were buying versus stuff. And the fact of the matter, we all bought in 2020 and 2021 an enormous amount of stuff, and the uh, system was just not set up to handle it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we're we're seeing issues bringing wine over from Europe and delays that are just absolutely unprecedented. It would used to take six weeks to get a container of wine from Europe, and now we're at six months. Um, it's really a challenge, and it's not just wine. It's all of the essentials, which are definitely um, bringing us into some pretty pretty expensive price increases, not to mention salary increases, increased cost of doing business um, in all aspects. Um, so we're, we're definitely um, experiencing a period of inflation and we're all feeling it um, from that. Um, any major changes in consumer behavior during the pandemic that uh, you wanna extrapolate out to the, the coming 2022 year? Yeah, I mean, obviously you had massive channel shift uh, on premise it was hit very hard down up to figures like 80% in some markets. Uh, it's recovered, but it's still well about in depletions, wholesale depletions, I think it's still running about 20% below what it had been in 2019. And that recovery is kind of leveled off. Uh, with the shopping channel shift, what you did see is a couple things that did benefit some segments, in particular, sort of forward-looking virtual and bricks and clicks retailers who had very good online shopping capabilities because you had a big shift in people shift switching to delivery or pick up mm -hmm. at the store. And even within the store where we monitored, you know, surveyed consumers sort of on steadily throughout 2020 and early 2021, we found people reported, wine drinkers reported, I'm spending less time in the store, I'm grabbing things off displays more, I'm not stopping to discuss. That all kind of favors, to some extent, the known brands and varieties 
and so on, and made it a bit more difficult with the exception of people, again, who had good online communication capabilities, uh, it made it difficult to sell new things, uh, despite the fact that consumers are interested in them. The other odd thing with the pandemic that affected wine is that the demographics that skew towards wine consumption were among the most cautious for going out to travel, restaurants, et cetera. So in that sense, I think wine was probably more badly hit than uh, spirits or sort of mainstream big brand beer in terms of consumption on premise in particular or traveling. Uh, product wise though, and I, I, I suspect Danny may you know, chime in or, conf on, or confirm this, a lot of the trends that pre-existed the pandemic continued. Uh, the varieties that people were favored have continued to grow. In fact, in some cases, accelerate. The ones that were slipping, you know, White Zinfandel, Merlot, Australian Shiraz, continued to slip. Uh, people are very interested in small packages. Um, and so uh, a lot of the, I would say most of the product trends you saw pre-pandemic have continued through that. And, and the small package thing is really interesting because there was one big surprise to me, at least, that came out of the trade survey. We asked retailers off-premise what they were doing with small packages because there's this wave of RTDs, you got hard seltzers, you got wine in cans, you've got a resurgence in 187 wines, et cetera. You know, you've got all these sort of hybrid products in single serving or close to single serving packages. What were they? Where were they merchandising them? Were they merchandising them in category or mixing them all together? And uh, significantly more retailers said they were putting them all together, whether in the cold box or on the shelf. You know, they're having essentially a single serve slash small package uh, set, which where you might find wine, you might find an RTD cocktail, you might find some sort of canned sangria, all kinds of things. Well, that um, that's really interesting. I have seen that sort of commingled set in some of the the retail accounts that I've been into and seen it growing. Um, you do a lot of package testing at Full Glass Research. Um, what what should people in the trade know about that packaging, especially in light of this commingling of brands and products on the shelf and and the new brands that are being released right now? Well, yeah, we're flooded with new brands and the trade was really divided on. It seems like half of them were saying, yes, you know, new brands make it more exciting, bring in new customers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the other half were saying we're just being swamped logistically. It's a hassle and people seem to be throwing stuff up against the wall. And it was pretty evenly divided uh, in terms of the trade survey. You know, package testing, I frankly, you know, obviously I'm biased here, but people don't do enough of it. You know, it's it's very common to see people just throw a new package out there without any kind of statistically significant quantitative testing of what consumers make of it. And I can tell you, as someone who's done a lot of these, I don't have a crystal ball to predict how someone will react. Most designers, even very talented ones who've come up with brilliant, successful packages, can't predict what a consumer will think the package communicates on a regular basis. So it really is, you know, about, about testing it on real consumers on your target uh, audience. And, you know, nowadays that's not, unless you have some very exotic kind of new breakthrough package, it's not that difficult or expensive a thing to do. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good point because sometimes just a little bit of tweak can um, help you get that presence on the shelf or send a completely different message from quality to casual to um, to fine dining. So yeah, I've and I've seen both. We did a craft beer test last uh, last year that where the designer absolutely nailed it. It was incredible. His the three things they want to communicate came out in on in sort of unaided open-end basis from the cons- large numbers of consumers. It was quite remarkable. So yeah, a good package design can go a long way. Well and it's expensive to make that change. So worth the worth the investment for sure. Um Danny, um any any comments you want to add to that? Christian was saying, you know, what's going on with the bottle price and uh, varietal trends on the shelf. Yeah, I I mean, first of all, it's always good to uh, Christian and I like to look at his lens being say a lot of consumer and shopper information. I have to look at some of the actual sales trends to see if they align. And for the most part. For the most part, we do. We sometimes have some fun debates. Um, I think there were some some changes. I mean, Christian said there's a lot of things that just maybe continued or even accelerated during the pandemic. Um, and for the most part, I think that's true. But I think there's some things that differed from what things had been uh, up until then. Uh, the most striking to me is just the the huge difference between what's going on at price points, say lower than 11 or $12 versus 12 and above. I've never seen the difference being as large as it has, as it is right now. And that, that lower end is in almost double digit or close to double digit decline, which I'd never seen declines to that extent. And where I think that's important is first of all, it accounts for a large proportion of the wine category. And it's often where younger people might enter and we want them to we want to continue to have a influx of newer legal uh, legal age drinkers come into the category so that they learn about the category and try new things and pay more money as they grow and appreciate wine over time. So that's at the lower end. Then at the kind of middle end, sort of a, I don't know, 11 to 15 around there, it's sort of small single digits. And then the, the trends just keep growing and, and gaining strength as we move up through price points. Uh, so the volume may be lower as you move up in price points, but things like 14 to 25, I was just looking, it's up 7% on volume, 25 to 50 is up 11% on volume, 50 plus is up uh, even in the 30s. Um, so there's just this real large distinction between the different sort of lower, middle, uh, upper end. And then um, on, a, on a varietal basis, that's where I think what Christian said, I've kind of seen the same sorts of things it's almost like everything 11 or 12 plus is doing well, but a couple I call out uh, Cabernet Sauvignon is, it's the largest over the largest varietal over 11 or $12. And it's growing at um, healthy single, smaller, but healthy single digits. And Sauvignon Blanc's the other one that um, shouts out to me because it's the number two white and it's growing almost at 10%, not quite. Um, and there's good growth from, you know, different countries, Maybe opportunities if the New Zealand shortage is really uh, what what I read about for American Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but those are a couple of varieties that kind of stick out to me. Good news for Saint Supery since they make one of the best Sauvignon Blancs in the country. So, oh well, <laughs> thank you. I'm just I'm just saying. Totally I, I want to add to that that we absolutely in the in the benchmark tracking survey of consumers saw this shift <clears throat> acceleration in the uh, higher end. It's 
pretty remarkable. Something on the order of 10 to 12% more people actually bought wine $50 or above uh, during 2021 when compared to the 2019 figures. And you had you know, major increases of people who had been buying once a year $50 wines to buying you know, a couple times a year, people who had been buying Twenty to thirty dollar wines, you know, a few times a year. We're now buying them on a regular monthly basis. So, and that was like an increase of forty percent in the in, on the number of people in that category. So, it really is uh, has a lot of momentum. You know, I I do wonder because we are seeing more of um, you know favorite traditional brands on the shelf now, where we were buying them in the restaurant as well in in the past. So. There's some, um, you know, joy, I think, being in the store and seeing your favorite restaurant brand actually in your in your local retailer um, that maybe is getting people to spend a little bit more money there as well. And that was probably part of, I mean, that channel shifting that um, Christian talked to, which is something that I watched just to see how fast things might come back, say, an on-premise or, or, or not. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that happened that just, I mean, those were some pretty significant changes, including things like you just talked about, Emma, that some things you might not have seen before in a restaurant or now in a store. And um, so there's there's some changes that, that the pandemic certainly has caused and changes, therefore, in consumer behavior and shopper behavior. You know, this um, sort of as we're hopefully heading out of COVID, um, we are seeing some shifts happening. And thankfully, our restaurant partners are open and um, seeing more of us as well. But I'm still, um, you know, seeing some pretty hefty trends of um, buying online and uh, retail consumption in those higher categories. How How do you sort of forecast that? Um, falling out over the next six, 12 months, Danny. <laughs> you know, I keep saying that data is so messy and forecasting is almost impossible. I mean, who, who could who could have predicted what has happened and who can still predict what might happen? Um, you know, but there are some things that, uh, some, some things, again, inevitably, I think are here and here to stay, like the e-commerce acceleration which was happening slowly, just, you know, was on steroids during COVID, right? So e-commerce and whether that's through three-tier, um, three-tier channels or whether that's DTC, I mean, that just exploded. And while in some cases that may be down versus like 2021 versus 2020, it's still way ahead of where it was in 2019. And those things aren't going to come, those things aren't going to go back to where they were. Um, so that's one. I mean, on-premise is something I certainly watch and obviously the um, there's other people that are going to talk about that today. I keep seeing and hearing a lot of different statistics about that from, you know, things are back to where they were. And on a same store basis, they might be. But I think that also ignores the fact that there's 20 or 30,000 less restaurants operating or on-premise accounts operating than there were. And, and actually that hit fine dining a little bit harder than some other types of channels. Um, so from what what I see, and I think Christian referred to it, on-premise in total for wine, its it share is still about 20% less than what its share was pre-COVID. So it's not that the volume was down 20%, but if it was say 20% of the business before now, it's 20% less than that share still. It's not back where it was and it's not back, frankly, as fast as spirits has come back. So there's still a way to go, um, particularly for wine in, in the on-premise. 
Yeah, that's very um, insightful. Any other trends that we should be watching um, for in 2022? Uh, if, he, if both of you get your crystal balls out, uh, what do you think we're going to be seeing here? Yeah, I, I mean, we're going to watch pricing, right? Everyone's talking about it. Any survey, anybody that I've talked to said, you know, likely going to take price up. Um, how fast that we actually see that at retail will be interesting. There's, there's lots of ways, there's lots of space between a supplier who might be thinking about taking price and whether that actually hits retail to the consumer. Um, so we'll certainly need to watch that pretty carefully. And then the other one that I really watch closely now is just um, cross-category buying. There are very few exclusive wine drinkers, and frankly, people that exclusively drink wine aren't big contributors to the wine category. The biggest contributors to the wine category are actually people that drink wine and other things. Um, so people, especially younger people, are increasingly making choices in, in terms of what alcohol they're going to choose for what occasion. Um, so that whole kind of competitive interaction between beer, wine, spirits, RTDs, hard seltzers, and everything that Christian talked about and I watch will be really interesting. It's, 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 it's a pretty important battle for wine to understand, be part of, hopefully win. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say um certainly that's a couple of things that I on pricing. I I I got two comments on pricing. One is uh when you see pricing stats, you do want to watch carefully to see whether it's talking about an ongoing average price of what's being sold or the pricing of specific items because you've seen average price rising steadily pre-2020 and through 2020 because people are trading up. Uh, and you're seeing declines, as Danny indicated, in the lower ends that have actually been accelerating. So that's going to accelerate the average price. Whether individual items can raise price, like Danny said, is a real big question. We haven't, the pandemic, nor the wine industry, hasn't done anything about the structural imbalance of power where you have many, many, many suppliers trying to go through a narrow funnel where some large buyers at the wholesale and retail level have enormous pricing power. Uh, and if they don't let people raise prices, unless you're a major have to have brand, it's very hard to raise price. Thank you both for your comments. Um, and I'm really excited now to introduce to you our, our retail and on-premise um, guests today. Alec Brugenthes with Smith & Malensky um, is joining us. He's the general manager of the National Wine Program. He got his sommelier diploma in 2005. Um, he's been the beverage manager, was the beverage manager and sommelier since August of 2012, the GM since December of 2016. And um, from 2015 and 2016, he was also um, teaching a weekly class for the International Sommelier Guild covering wine grapes, styles, regions, and history. Um, also, while working as a beverage manager, you're a busy man. Um, so thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure also to be here. 
We also have uh, Jimmy Chavez, general manager with Dukes and a partner with TS Restaurant Groups. Uh, Jimmy is a California native and grew up between Northern and Southern California, spending uh, most of his formative years in uh, North County, San Diego, and um, starting at the University of Southern California to become an architect. But then um, I think you caught the hospitality bug there, like the rest of us, Jimmy, and um, started your career. career as a busser at Jake's in Del Mar and a cook um, at Borden Brew and then um, have worked your way through the ranks learning everything there is to learn um, and working for the wonderful TS restaurant groups and becoming a partner there. And Dukes is one of the 14 uh, TS uh, groups um, and you're managing their wine list. And I so enjoy um, both of your restaurants. So it's um Really exciting to have you here with us today. And um, we're also going to have Charlene Pontrelli, um, who worked as a trader in Chicago for 15 years. And then the last 15 has been a wine shop proprietor. She's a WSET level three owner of Cellar 406, a very customer-centric wine shop. We're very grateful to have her on. Um, She's really put forward her customers first, and those loyal customers have helped her through the pandemic. The wine experience and long-term customer care and satisfaction is really at the forefront of her business, bringing joy and inspiring loyalty, and really truly curating customer sellers for um, her customers from the dinner table to the collectible. So it's great to have Charlene here with us too and bringing that to retail perspective. But let's uh, jump into on-premise first and uh, dive in a little bit, um, starting with you, Alec, on um, a bit of how and why and what's going on with um, reduction in um, selection on wine lists. What are, what are you seeing? Um, we know there was a, a lot of uh, sort of forced uh, selection reduction uh, due to supply chain, and then also just kind of managing through the pandemic. Where, where do you see that having been and um, going um, as far as uh, wineless uh, selection? Well, starting off, uh, coming out of shelter in place or the beginning of the pandemic, um, we there was wineless reduction because we didn't know what to expect next. We didn't know when uh, if something was going to come back, if all of a sudden we were going to shut down again. Uh, it didn't take long for us to realize we needed to start building our list back up because people wanted to go out and were going out in droves. Um, to you know, echo some of the statistics that uh, that we heard earlier, um, wine drinkers were definitely trading up, but sticking with things that were familiar, sticking with, and granted, this is through the lens of steakhouses, uh, sticking with Cabernet, sticking with Pinot Noir, uh, sticking with the, uh, the brands that are popular that have always been popular and really not willing to, uh, explore, uh, new regions, new varietals, things like that. Uh, I think that's something that will continue, but I have a feeling eventually um, people will let me go to the tables again and actually talk to them about uh, other things that they may enjoy because uh, I never, I, until this, until this discussion, I didn't really realize that uh, I'm making fewer table visits because people don't necessarily want that stranger at the table hovering over them, providing them with advice. 
Um, and I'm sure it's probably this, you know, as we heard the same in retail where you're not going to ask a, a clerk at a large, large store or a small one, you're going to grab what's familiar because you know, that's a winner, uh, because it's been a winner before. Um, you know, we are selling a little bit less wine, um, for instance, in 2021 than we did in 2019, but the wines that are selling are, uh, a much higher price point. Uh, and to the point where I have to start looking across the country for things that are older vintages, things that would be put on a reserve or a library list, because it seemed like those were the first to go. And all of our locations are struggling to find those wines uh, because that's what people are, are looking for. It's as if, uh, you know, this, you know, COVID has made a, made a lot of wine drinkers think, you know, you only go around once. Let's let's take advantage of it. Oh, look what they have. Oh, my gosh. It's a 2005. Dollar hide Cabernet Sauvignon. <laughs> and believe me, I had like 18 bottles of that when we reopened. And in like seven weeks, they were all gone uh, to play to the person that has put me on this podcast. But uh <laughs> Wow. You know, that's a, I mean, that, that is a true example. And it's, it's not just that wine. It's, it's many others like it. Uh, and I hope that continues, but you know, you see a rise of, uh, you know, I never sold sparkling wine like the way I have in the past 18 months. Um, I'm going through so much sparkling wine that it's, it's, it's wonderful, but I find it surprising. Well, I think it's a lot of that celebration mentality as well that, you know, we want to to find things um, to, you know, celebrate. We're all alive. We've, we've almost made it through this thing, we hope. Um, but I think that is a lot of the, the consumer um, mentality. I want to go back to something you said that I hadn't really thought about is that standing over the person, looking at the wine list together, how um, that's just sort of unappealing as a, as a customer anymore. Any any thoughts on um, how to to change that um, interaction to to be a little bit more social distance yet intimate and um, sort of inspiring, um, whether it's technology or um, just interaction well, at the table level? Well, I think part of uh, part of at least what goes on at our restaurants, part of it is based in technology because we use uh, digital wine lists. Mm -hmm. And you can touch on a wine and it will not only give you the, uh, you know, the, the, the sapage or the, the breakdown of what's actually in it, where it's from. Um, you can see what scores it's received. Uh, and then there's also an interactive map that you could click on and see exactly where in the world this wine is from uh, and expand it to the point to where you can see neighboring wineries. So maybe you haven't had. Uh, for instance, St. Supery before, but you see the neighbors, you know, that you have there in Rutherford, you know, that might give someone some confidence. So there's, there's a lot of information packed into that, as opposed to on a paper list where you would see a varietal, a, uh, you know, the winery, the vintage and the price. There's a lot more uh, information there at the, uh, at the guest fingertips. So I think that definitely plays into uh, fewer table visits. And I think things like that um, will definitely assist in that. And even if it was a, a written list, just putting a few short sentences after that wine, um, giving it some, 
giving it a narrative. It's so much easier to sell something, you know, table side when you're able to give a, a personal experience or just a, uh, you know, a fun little narrative um, just to, to make that wine seem a little bit more special. Something that that guest can then tell their friends about the wine that they had the night before, or the week before, things like that. So if you can find a way to put a narrative to the wine without having to be next to those guests at the table, I think, I think that's the way to go. Uh, I actually have a question for Alec and then later Jimmy also. Uh, one thing we found in a 2020 survey of consumers uh, on on-premise kind of behavior and choice and so on is, is there was a real excitement at offerings that were kind of entertaining, maybe enter slightly educational. You know, people really enjoyed and wanted to see more of, for instance, flights or things that came with the glass that explained, you know, who the person was behind it or kind of things that gave it a, a little, it wasn't just a beverage anymore. And it wasn't just a sort of classic wine food pairing or wine prestige thing. It was something more, something a little pizzazz to wine. Uh, I, I, I think that's something that's always been the case pre and post pandemic, because it's a, uh you know, something that's interactive, even if you're just, um, even if you're just simply within the act of learning, it's more than you're doing more than just drinking a glass of wine. Uh, currently we're doing a, uh, a program with, uh, some higher end wines that we're offering via core of it. And we have uh, little, little handouts that we put on, on tables or that servers can bring over that tell a history of the wineries, um, and you know, the people that make these wines and it's, it's going very, very well. And it's, you know, there, there aren't too many questions about these products because it seems like that information that's provided um, kind of, you know, wraps it up and that sort of seals the deal. Um, and I think that might even fall into, I mean, I know it's a, it's still coming out of a bottle, but that single serving. Um, so you're only getting one glass of this very nice wine. Uh, and I feel like that, uh, that goes along with, those single serving or smaller bottles that are offered via retail. Um, and it's, uh, I think it also shows uh, a minimal commitment. Like, okay, I'm only gonna get six ounces of this wine as opposed to buying the whole bottle, which gives them an opportunity to continue with what they have or an opportunity to try something else that's similar. Um, you know, just maintaining those options and maintaining uh, control so you can, uh, um, you know, curate your own experience. Well, and it kind of feeds back into that celebratory um, thing. You're trying something expensive and luxury and, and you're treating yourself. Definitely. Absolutely. Charlene, you're very focused on your customers and providing them with great satisfaction um, and really addressing their needs from collections to what they want on their table on a Tuesday night. How are you seeing their needs, wants, and desires change um, in what they're looking for in the store? Well, I think kind of with anything, you have to be quick on your feet. So when the pandemic first hit, I realized that people are obviously going to be drinking more at home. I didn't realize how much they're going to be drinking at home, but they're drinking more at home when it first hit. But then I also realized that everyone's scared. So I had to read them and see what their price points were. I think for any kind of successful business, you have to, you have to overwhelm, overwhelm them with product and underwhelm them with price, if that makes sense. 
So if I can show you a wine that's fantastic at 20, that you think drinks like a $30 bottle, I've won. So that's always my goal. So I never try to upsell anybody. If they say, hey, I'm looking for a $30 bottle, I'll say, hey, I've got this great one at 25. And if I have a great one at 35, I'll say, hey, if you want to spend a little bit more, this one will be worth it. So you really have to give them what they're looking for. And if I can over deliver with them, I've won. And the other thing is I try to tell everyone is when I'm tasting wine and trying wine, I'm not buying for myself. I'm buying for the customer. So I'm lucky that I've been here enough long time that I have developed a very loyal customer base. And I usually try wine with people and I say, hey, what do you like about this? What don't you like about it? Let me get an idea of where your palate's at. How do you see the number of SKUs changing in your store? I haven't had to pull back on any number of SKUs. I don't have a ton of SKUs here to begin with. I only have about... 800 to 900 so it's not a big shop but what i'm very lucky is is that i always look for the best value and i try to find wine specific wines if that makes sense so if somebody's you know they like that uh heavy tannins great balance greatest city i try to find those wines and i try to keep the shop fresh i always keep the same big sellers that everybody loves but if I've seen a wine start to slow down in sales, I'll change it out and find something fresh. I mean, because the shop can get really small really fast. So I want to keep it fresh. And I'm very lucky that people trust me. So if I have somebody on the fence, I'd be happy to open a bottle and say, hey, try this new one that I have. Let me know what you think about it. Oh, yeah, I love it. Oh, you know, not quite my style. I prefer something more. I said, okay, here, let's try this one. Yeah. And Jimmy, um, what are, what are you saying on, um, the reduction of, of wines or what people are looking for just post pandemic to now and where the trends are going on the, the wine list and in the restaurants? Yeah, I think one of the main reasons that we dealt with, um, was we have these beautiful menu boards and our wine list came in these separate kind of hardbound books with multiple pages and, Immediately in COVID, that all got reduced to a front and back disposable menu that had all of your food content on it, all of your featured drinks, beers, all of those things. And so the real estate got drastically reduced and uh, we were limited to about 50 SKUs per wine list, depending on the concept, when most had well over 100. Um, and so that played a big role in it. And then I think Another point to touch on was we're, you know, our company's old and our restaurants have been around for a while. And so a lot of our restaurants have a lot of tenured staff in them. Uh, and those usually the tenured staff are the ones that are maybe more into wine. Those are the ones that are hand selling the fun bottles on the list and um, skilled in, in doing so. And we lost a lot of those people coming out of um, the closures and, and through COVID. And so now you have people on your floor who are much less experienced, much, much less knowledgeable, much, much less skilled, and you don't have the time or the resources to train them and show them. We used to do so much more hands-on training and seminars and workshops and tastings and all these educational things that were so fun um, and telling the story behind each wine. And now you've just got someone with, you know, hopefully they have serving experience running around on the floor. Um, and maybe that's part of the reason, too, I think that we saw, I think, a shift in sales um, 
for us to, to liquor seemed to be the one that, that gained the most. Um, I think maybe one last point would be just travel, domestic travel, limited people couldn't go to Hawaii. They couldn't go internationally. And so we saw a lot of guests traveling domestically um, and those featured drinks, especially for us in the Duke's concept, those Island inspired beverages, uh, giving them that taste that they couldn't quite achieve in reality. So that was us. Yeah. And those specialty cocktails too, are things that are harder to recreate at home. Um, and they do give you that little feeling like you're, you're on holiday for sure. Um, any trends kind of looking forward, um, that you're thinking about with, you know, staff training. And I mean, obviously for all of us, staffing has been um, an issue around the country, around the world um, and providing that, that training thoughts on um, trends for that as well as we move into the, to the new, new year. Yeah. I mean, we're anxious to get our education programs up and running again. Um, I just don't know when that will be. I mean, here in LA, things are pretty, pretty scary right now. And so we're not getting anybody into rooms and, and doing that kind of stuff. Um, we can try and do a quick little pre-shift and feature something, but it looks to be that we'll stick with this current model with this lean 50 skew type of model, um, which does cut out a lot of the fluff, you know, a lot of those fun offbeat varietals or regions, mm -hmm. um, because they were never really selling. And now it's very clear that you need that real estate for those, you know, the cabs, the pinos, just like Alec mentioned, I mean, that's what people want. And uh, I think it's important to kind of be smart about that. Yeah, for sure. And it's also, you know, getting in to see you, as you say, to provide the training and, um, you know, how do, how do you do that efficiently um, and safely for everyone? It's a, it's a bigger challenge. Any thoughts on that, Alec, from your um, fine dining perspective? Uh, we're, we're definitely, uh, doing fewer staff trainings, uh, hardly really doing any staff tastings. It's, um, it's, it, it's just difficult and, you know, we can't do things the way that we used to, um, just given, uh, health concerns. Uh, one thing that, uh, our company is in the process of putting together is creating like a, like a cloud-based platform where we can have, uh, content that, um, some folks in Boston have already even, which is where our home office is, um, started creating where, uh, we'll have videos from wineries or distilleries or breweries, um, for making any of our, uh, our, um, specialty cocktails that are listed on our menu. Uh, there's videos on how to make those. Uh, it's going to be, a you know, we're, it's still being created, but it's going to be a database that any new hire or any long tenured, uh, employee can go to, uh, and that information will be right there. Um, I almost find that that's, uh, working better than with, uh, you know, even having someone come in, um, whenever I conduct a staff training. Uh, I almost feel like that they're tired of hearing my voice and some people tune out. So I always like having a special guest, you know, someone coming in to talk about their product uh, that really isn't happening. Uh, so if I could email a video out or some type of, uh, you know, training, then it's it's on the uh, the employee to, you know, they could do it on their time and they could, uh, you know, curate when they want to do that. 
and I found that that's been, you know, very effective. And that that's what I'm getting follow up questions from or emails from my staff. Where I'm like, oh, I saw this video. Can you tell me a little bit more about this? Things like that. Uh, that's definitely something that's going to continue. And I hope there will be a point when I can bore my staff with what I think about the new wines that I'm bringing in. Well, you know, that's a good point. You know, a little over a decade ago, we um, rolled out a a buy the glass program with um, with one of our um, red wines and with a Sauvignon Blanc in a a south um, eastern uh, sort of national account, southeastern regional accounts. And um, they had a a two, three day training program for all of the staff. And we had put together a short video of about five minutes and we were getting tweets and and comments from the staff that that was the best part about their training because everything else was, you know, at that point in time, a decade ago was in-person lectures and, you know, um, sitting down and kind of classroom style. And um, I think that people's attention span is shorter and they, they want to learn it very, very quickly, um, and how they can, can move forward. So that's, a, that's a good point, mixing it up with some, uh, video. And now we all have the, um, reason that we need to, to do that. Other trends that you're seeing from your, your customers and service potential, Jimmy, any, um, other things that really are, feeling like you need to address here as we move through the new year and, and continue to navigate the, the virus? Um, I mean, I think for us, it, it really is kind of the bang for the buck. I think that's going to come back around. Um, people are buying up to that next level, but I'm starting to see a little bit of uh, a cannibalism with like happy hours. And, and so I think it's trending back towards a value type thing soon. Um, and I'll be interested to see how that affects us, you know, and what, how we can be smart about offering good value, um, to try to, you know, meet that market as well as that high end celebratory, um, you know, that buy up market, but that's going to be interesting, especially in Hawaii. Yeah. I think as we, you know, depending what happens with inflation as we get supply chain cleaned up, it, it could kind of go either direction where it's still very celebratory or people are, are watching their pocketbooks a little bit more. And, and any other thoughts on new best business practices, things that uh, were kind of great about that, any good things that came out or good new practices that came out of the pandemic for you? I think just that, you know, cutting away all that fluff and getting down to really what's what's important on the on the menu. And then if we can find a way to get back to those meaningful table touches, like Alec mentioned, I mean, that's going to be that's been a big void still for us as well. And what makes our restaurant so special is connecting with our guests. And it's hard with masks on, you know, for a while in L.A. when we had masks and face shields on. I mean, it's impossible to try to have any kind of meaningful conversation, let alone about wine. Um, And then having to like enforce protocols with guests and leading with that foot forward of, oh, I'm sorry, can you put your mask on? You know, it's just, it's 180 degrees from hospitality. And we'd like really badly to get back to that. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good point because I think everyone. The reason we're coming out is we miss uh, we miss seeing all of you too. It's not just uh, not having to cook at home. It's going out for that wonderful experience that the the restaurants curate for us and and make us happy. Um, Alec, how about you? What are you um, seeing as your sort of new normal things you're going to keep and um, things you can't wait to change? Uh, like to uh, echo what Jimmy just said, I'm, I, I don't like telling my guests no, or things that they can't do or things that they have to do. That's not hospitality. And, uh, I'm really excited to stop doing that. Um, it's, 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 it's become too commonplace to where it's, well, it, I, I feel like that's just how it is now. And that's something that I feel that needs to change. Um, as far as things that are, uh, you know, good takeaways from this. It's, you know, it's seeing what's important, seeing, um, you know, how strong of a team that you have, uh, or, you know, at least that we have at all of our locations, you know, the, the, the people that stayed that the people that, uh, are working longer and harder, uh, with, you know, guests that can be agreeable or not agreeable. Uh, it's, it's very difficult working in restaurants. Um, no matter what, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. But the past 18, 24 months, working in restaurants has been almost impossible. And the fact that we have such great teams that are still doing it and doing it with smiles that you can't see because they're behind masks. And, uh, and they, they come back and do it, you know, day after day. And, you know, I'm thankful for them. And to know that they're there, going through the past 24 months is, you know, if, if, if it's worth it for anything, it's to know how strong of a, a group that I work with. That's great. Um, any final comments from the group, Jimmy, Danny, Christian? I, I'd actually like to say one thing that is not sort of quantitative and data driven, but uh, a couple of people in the sort of middle tier wholesale and importer have told, told me is that the pandemic kind of forced them to focus on their best accounts, but switching to sort of Zoom, et cetera, communication, they actually ended up interacting more often with those best accounts and to some extent in more effectively, they thought, than pre-pandemic. And I was wondering how uh, you two guys feel about that. You know, do you, have you seen any of that in, with your suppliers? Uh, I'm seeing a, a little bit more um, with some suppliers. Uh, in the past nine months, I haven't been on Zoom that much. Uh, there are a couple suppliers actually that do stick out that switch to doing a fair amount of uh, of work via Zoom and uh, and doing everything they can to make it convenient. Like here's a 15, 20 minute um, overview of a product. We'll send you a bottle or a half bottle of it. Let's interact. That's worked out really well with a couple. Um, and that's something I kind of wish other people would do. Whether, whether there's a, you know, COVID is still a thing or not. Yeah. It's a lot easier to see uh, six suppliers in a row on Zoom, boom, 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 and taste than be um, shuffling through the restaurant too. Jimmy, any thoughts on that? Yeah, to be honest, I haven't had that many Zoom interactions with suppliers. I think here in LA, at least in this area, 
similar to what I said about our tenured staff, a lot of the distributors are suffering from a competitive um, workforce as well. And I think there's a lot of new faces who maybe don't have the knowledge um, of a seasoned sales rep, you know what I mean? And so I think that that's kind of, as we're getting back into the waters and starting to taste again and look through the lists, it'll be interesting to see what mediums or what new ideas these distributors have that are COVID safe or they're just fun and exciting because I haven't really been dealing with that yet. Great point. Danny, any final words of wisdom you want to leave us with? I don't know about words of wisdom, but um, I mean, I think the one good thing about COVID, it's, it's, I mean, there's so many terrible things, but it's, it's caused some people to do things differently and it's caused some people to stop doing things that really weren't working before, <laughs> probably. Um, so, you know, just need to be optimistic and be flexible and, you know, get try to get through it all um, and hope that at one point we won't have to think about all the things we've got to think about today. Like traveling is just miserable. All the things you got to do that you didn't have to do before. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a different world. It's a different world. Well, hopefully we're all going to stay safe and healthy and um, back in, in business a little, little bit more like the old days from a hospitality perspective and, um, and keeping some of the, the good things um, that have come out of the, the shift that we've been under. I just want to thank all of you for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and your insights. And um, thank you so much for, for being online with us.